clubhouse. I'd known death since I was a child. It's everywhere. But it had never touched me. It had never placed its rotten finger on my heart. Until today. Today my eyes died. I see the world through my mother's eyes now. Yes. Freedom has fangs. And it sunk them in me. I chose to love him. He chose to love me back. Then chose to protect me. Then a man we've never met chose to kill him. And made me colorblind. Welcome to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of 1883, a prequel series to Yellowstone. I'm Caroline. And I'm Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode 5 of 1883, The Fangs of Freedom. <laughs> Tonight's episode was written by Taylor Sheridan and once again directed by Christina Alexandra Voros. This is the third episode in a row directed by Ms. Voros, and she takes us right into the old mid-season break. Just a community note, please join us on Facebook in the Yellowstone 1883 and 4 Sixes Discussion and News Group to discuss 1883 and the whole universe of Yellowstone shows. Also, a little scheduling note about 1883. We've got episode five uh, happened uh, tonight. Uh, episode six is going to air on January 30th. So there is a week off in between episode and five and six. They're taking like a one week midseason break. The finale is going to air on February 27th. So just doing that back of the envelope math. There are 10 episodes, so it seems like we're going to get the last five episodes of the season are going to come out straight. No breaks. So buckle in on January 30th. It's going to be a ride to the back end of the season. Just a reminder to our listeners, we've assumed that you've watched the episode, so we're not going to go step-by-step recapping the episode for you. We're just going to give you our thoughts on everything, and we might jump around a little bit with our characters and different scenes. So if you haven't watched the episode, you should definitely go check it out now. (sighs) What do we think of this mid-season break, Caroline? What did you think? It was a lot. I mean, I'm sad. It was a big loss to the show. I'm I'm very sad. Very sad, too. I, I, let's get into a little bit of discussion about the pros and cons of when a show kills off a regular cast member or a main cast member. Tonight's episode features the death of Ennis, no last name, though we have a theory on that, maybe. Eric Nelson, who has been so great in the show, I think his chemistry with Isabel May uh, and the characters of Elsa and Ennis, I think, have captivated a lot of the viewers. And I, I personally, I, I love their story. I love their story tonight. Uh, they had big, big milestones, humor, tears. What, what do you think about a show that takes a swing like this halfway through its first season, taking one of the major kind of players off the board? 
I think that not only does it take the major player off the board, but it takes this entire storyline, everything that we're experiencing through Elsa when it comes to love and freedom and having these new experiences. It eliminates that entire portion of it and really changes the trajectory for her from this hopeful future to this tragedy and her having to deal with all the the horrors that life has for her. I'm sorry for it because this was a really bright spot every week when we would watch them together. It it was always the part that I was smiling at. It was always where there was a lot of, you know, comic relief. Ennis himself provided so much comic relief in the last couple. It's really going to be a big loss, you know, beyond just the character itself, but just all the different parts that he played in the bigger story. You remember in that first season episode of Yellowstone where John has them blow up the river to redirect it? I do. I feel like this is that, right? They have Mm. redirected the story. They have forcibly redirected the story. It's no longer going to be a coming-of-age love story for Elsa, presumably. It's going to be a coming-of-age trauma story, widow story, really, in a lot of ways. I mean, they never officially got married, but they were, this episode sets up that that's where they're going to be headed. They pointed it out. Um, I mean, she said it just point blank. I no longer can see it through my own eyes. I'm now seeing the world through my mother's eyes. That's a, you know, a, a hard left that you can't come back to. Yeah. Let's play that clip right here. This is uh, the end of the episode. I'd known death since I was a child. It's everywhere. But it had never touched me. It had never placed its rotten finger on my heart. Until today. Today my eyes died. I see the world through my mother's eyes now. Yes. Freedom has fangs, and it sunk them in me. I chose to love him. He chose to love me back, then chose to protect me. Then a man we've never met chose to kill him. And made me colorblind. Maybe killing this man will get my eyes back. Maybe it won't. But I chose to find out. I mean, that clip brings together so many different themes this show has been talking about from the from the beginning to say nothing of earlier in this episode where Margaret and Elsa are are having their sex talk in the river while they're taking their bath. And Margaret says, I'm, I'm, you know, she's talking about how she's envious of her and how she wishes she could see the world through her eyes. But she knows one day, but one day I know you're going to see the world through my eyes and it breaks my heart. I mean, there's a lot of foreshadowing of pending death in this episode, whether it was pointing specifically to Ennis or not. It definitely felt like something deadly was on the horizon. And additionally, we have Shay, you know, crying at the very beginning. He says, we're making a lot of widows and orphans. And, you know, I definitely think that's what we did here. 
Uh, did you see this death coming? Because you you are a great proponent of the when the show gives the full backstory on the person in reality television that you know they're getting voted off at the end of that episode. And it's actually a theory that opened my eyes and made me watch reality television in a whole different <laughs> way. And I think it actually translates often to dramas, to scripted television. Did did you see it? Did you get the this is Ennis's final moments playing out on screen vibe? His mechanism within the story was to have this kind of this moment for Elsa where she really separated herself from her parents where she says I'm an adult and I'm sorry that that was what he was being used for for the story like it catapulted her you know from innocence right squarely into adulthood but at the same time, I think when he stood up for himself to James, you know, they were able to like say how much they loved each other and they sort of got over that hill. I mean, it did release a lot of tension that existed within the story. You know, it was all, will they, won't they? How far is this going to go? There was a lot of don't. There's a lot of finger wagging. There's a lot of we're watching you. All of that was being dispelled once the second here that she was being able to say, no, I love him. He's saying, no, I love her. I'm going to be with her. All of those things kind of created the perfect storm of like, well, if he was here <laughs> just for just to have this tension on the ride, what's a way that you kind of just deal with that right now? Well, you have her feel like, no, I'm an adult. They all kind of have this horrible moment of like, you think you know what you want kind of breaking of hearts like across the 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 board for everybody i mean especially james his quiver and his voice mm, it was so so bad when he's like you think you've have it all figured out i mean it hurt my heart so bad because as a parent you know you just you know when your kid is going too fast too far you know everything is happening more than they can handle and once that that tension was kind of released then it felt like, oh, crap. <laughs> he was probably only in this to create that tension and to get her to the next step, you know, stepping stone. We're there now. That means he's outlived his usefulness. You know, this really started in episode two. It's episode five. So we had four episodes, really, of this meet cute into love blooms into maybe a baby being conceived. Now he's dead and she's alone. That's a lot. That's a lot to process in four episodes of a show. And we learned tonight only three weeks or less than three weeks of show timeline. That's a lot. Looking back on it, do you think the show did enough to convince the viewers of this love? I mean, this is this is the clip you were talking about between James and Ennis, which I think is a great clip. And I'm proud. I feel like this is Ennis really becoming a man for the first time by standing up to James and, and trying to convince him that this isn't seedy. This is this is real. I'll take your licks if you got more to give. I'm a man and I'll take them. I'll take her too. Will you? That's how you ask. I ain't asking nothing. If she loves me, I'm taking it. If you won't give her to me, I'll goddamn steal her. I swear it. You say you love her, but you won't ever love her like I do. It's my heart you're running off with. You better cradle it like an egg. I will, sir. 
Now, I had to edit that clip a little bit down because it would have been very long otherwise. But in between there, you have his line where he where James turns to Elsa because she intercedes. I mean, I think James would have beaten Ennis to death, if not just into a bloody pulp. But Elsa comes and intercedes and says, I went to him. I pursued this. I love him. Couldn't you just see his face just like yeah. just crumble when she says I went to him? I mean, oh, my God. That's what I'm saying about the like you know well, that's i guess real though is that so real well, I feel- for like a hot second i lost track of the idea that this is a hundred percent her coming of age story when she when her horse cuts against james and and blocks his his path from him being able to get to ennis that move in and of itself as a daughter myself was a huge huge milestone of stepping in the path of your father to stop him from interacting with another man is huge you can't come back from that i mean you that, cannot you cannot undo that you cannot undo that move james will remember mm-hmm. that maybe elsa won't but oh she will the first time you stand up to your dad like that yeah you do as a dad i can tell you for sure the first time that ever happens i'm gonna remember the first time my son intercedes and and steps in front of me in that kind of way because it implies i'm big enough and i'm tough enough to take you on myself now is she no but but mentally and emotionally yes she thinks she, she, thinks is. she is right but that's what love is though right i mean that's the, that's all wrapped up in this idea of love and james is trying to say you don't know what that word means she's like no i do but can anyone really ever tell? I think parents try, and we were both parents. We're both going to try and teach our kids what love is and what love isn't and versus what lust is and what lust isn't, which I think Margaret tap dances around a little bit in this episode, but doesn't really oh, get to. Oh, my God. Do I want to talk about that uh, tap dancing? For sure. For sure. I, mean, <laughs> we definitely, I feel like we need to grade old Margaret on I'm her sex angry. talk. I'm angry. I'm uh, angry. But I mean, but, I, but it also made me think, though. I've been in love for the first time before. You've been in love for the first time before. Can anyone ever really, really tell you what love is? I feel like that isn't that something that we all have to figure out on our own? I don't know. What do you think? I think you want to hope that there's been enough people in your child's life at the point when romantic love comes in that they can they have experienced some amount of secure love, you know, whether it's with, you know, family, friends, whatnot, where there's there's some kind of boundary lines of like, I should feel safe, I should feel heard, I should feel protected, you know, there's trust, there's all these things that hopefully there's been some amount of modeling of what that looks like so that when they move into romantic love, and there's more of these like physical urges that you try to apply those same things. Like, can I trust this person? Can I be vulnerable with this person? There's obviously, you know, the the whole, you know, just dopey headed kind of feeling that you get when, you know, you're around that person that you really, really are suddenly attracted to. That's very hard to explain until you just feel it yourself. And, but I think as audience members, we saw that there was a lot of her with the give and take with him that that went beyond just like, Oh, I just want to like throw myself on him. Like they had a lot of like verbal banter and a lot of things that were going on that, you know, sold it to me. You asked me a very, a very good question. Do I think that the story itself had sold the idea that these two people fell in love with each other? I think so. I think all those things of like, you know, God, you're so bold. You know, I've never met anyone like you. Even in this episode, right? He's still saying that even this episode, even to Wade, like there's no fear in that one out, you know, like. Yeah. And, and you could see that that was 
that was real, you know, that there was something there, you know, especially when you're going in this time of the, of the, you know, life is short, 39 years is all these people are getting. And they're already, I mean, they're like midlife. (laughs) It's not so crazy. It's harder for us looking at 2022, looking back and saying, these are just young, very young, young, young adults, you know, how do they know? But if you go more towards like what this, what societally where they would be, they would be getting married. They would be having kids. I think someone who will protect you, someone who will come back and say things like, don't go anywhere alone and then know you so well as to say, I mean it. Don't go anywhere alone because he knows she's like a wanderer or that she's, you know, maybe not going to take it oh so seriously. She listened to him. That's my other thing. She listened to him. She respected what he was saying. She got her gun out when he told her to. Those types of things to me, that is your visual, I can trust. I can be vulnerable. I, I feel protected. I feel safe. All the things that I'm talking about, you see happening between them. So I'm good. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. I I think the story was written in a way that sold it, but I, I have to give a lot of the credit to, I think, as Isabel May and Eric Nelson. I think they really sold between their chemistry and just the banter and the awkward young loveness of it all. I'm I'm old, but I'm not so old as to not remember those feelings. And it all felt very real to me watching these two play out, even even in the sex scene. I mean, this is a big moment. We had her first kiss just last week. We have their both of these guys really first time with sex. And the show it could have been creepy. It could have been it could have well it was awkward, but it could have been creepy and really disturbing to watch. And I think the show handled it in a very sweet, innocent, believable kind of way. I appreciated the fact that when she asked him about his experience, that he was truthful with her. He didn't try to like throw some machismo on top of it and act like, oh yeah, I've been with lots of women or whatever. He was vulnerable with her. Again, these are, this is ticking my boxes of Mm -hmm. like, I feel like he told the truth, even though it was embarrassing to him. He was vulnerable with her. He asked, like, is this okay? Like, are you, like, are you sure kind of thing? Like, all of the vibe was, like, trying to be careful, trying to be safe, trying to watch out for each other's feelings. All of those things felt, and when I say safe, I don't mean, like, they didn't do things that would have been safer, <laughs> like, physically. But I mean safe, like, they were trying to look out for each other's feelings. They right. were trying to look out for each other, like, mental health-wise, like, talk to each other, be honest with each other. Those were the things that made it feel less awkward and less, like, we were just voyeurs. Like, I didn't feel that way. I felt like we were a part of two people trying to express, like, how do we do this exactly? How How is this going to work for us? And I dare say his honesty in that scene, and I'm going to play the clip in a second, I, I feel like is a little even swoon worthy the way he ends up talking mm-hmm. about how it, it the sort of of it all right because the girl in Dodge City he didn't like her like that and his body wouldn't react the way it's going to react or is reacting with Elsa if you take it in the right context it's very it's very swoon worthy uh, the way he says it and he doesn't mean it to be he's not trying to be slick or casual this is certainly doesn't feel like he's just putting a notch on a bedpost saying whatever he has to you know to claim the farmer's daughter kind of thing it seems very sincere which i think makes it all the more sweeter and endearing to him let's listen to that the sort of clip you know what to do i've done this before sort of sort of yeah Uh, 
این در سری پیروم نشامی بلا دیدن وقت دیدن وقت هاو I didn't like her. My body, it, it wouldn't. She, she couldn't make me feel like this. No matter what I paid her. But I, I know what to do if you want me to do it. I've watched a lot of television. I can't think of a time ever when a person, a guy admitted that his, you know, penis didn't work because he wasn't attracted to the girl. But damn, if it's not honest and revealing and, and extremely endearing because it's so stripped to the bare truthful. It made me happy that he wasn't trying to, like I said, act, you know, bigger and more experienced than he was. Right. Which is the cowboy trope, right? I mean, this is the same guy who, it's you a know. man trope, yes. man. But I, I mean, mean, there's, this, there's right. very few people who have a woman in bed who are going to say, actually, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing. Like, there's very few people who are ever going to say that. So I think there was something about that, that again, it spoke to some idea that he didn't have to be someone who he wasn't. And she could hear and be a safe place for him to say things like that and him not be too embarrassed or too, you know, feeling like he has to put on a front. So, again, speaks to their their relationship. Circling up on things that this show did and handled in a way that I feel like a lot of shows wouldn't handle the same way and I think are less successful is that it is Elsa who goes to him. I mean, when she she brings that blanket and kind of he turns around and she 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 opens it and she explains it that way then to her father the next day. I like that, though. That's her being in charge of her own sexuality, not being forced into this. There was no pressure from Ennis. Like you said, he was very, you know, I know what to do if you want me to do it. And she says that clip ends, you know, with her saying, you know, I want you to do it. It was echoing when they were kissing for the first time. And she says, do it again. You know, it was it was right. all very reminiscent of that. He He and her took each other's hands every step of the way. There had been a lot of implied moments. You know, Margaret says, you know, it sounds like to me like, you know, Ennis was trying to get you in the bath, you know, with him. Like there mm-hmm. was a lot of that kind of like pushing where Elsa would be quick to clap back and be like, he didn't say anything like that. Like, right. stop trying to act like he's the one coming for me. That's tiresome. And they were smart to do that because honestly, you know, go back over to Yellowstone and look at Beth. Like she's not somebody who is shy about sex or she's always going to be the one who's, who's like making moves herself. She is the alpha always. Yeah. yeah, it can get really tiresome for a lot of women to be to be told like, oh, well, he's trying to do this to you. Don't you see he's trying to do this? And it's like, will you just knock it off? Like maybe I'm trying to do something and maybe, you know, maybe you're not seeing this for what it is. It goes back to the old like men like sex and women don't like sex kind of silliness. That is not true. The show had shown their movement towards this, but this episode, again, this foreshadowing episode of, of Impending Danger 
and us being very protective of here. Not only of her feelings in the sex moment of not wanting to do anything without her saying so, but like you said, coming back to her when the bandits are coming, you know, get to get the pistols out of your saddlebags. Don't go anywhere. I know you. I mean, Lord, no, nothing ever made me feel more <laughs> like like you in Elsa than when he says, I mean it. She knows that she wanders. I mean, it's the same thing James said to her in the pilot, you know, no one yeah. wanders more than you wander. Right. She's wandering in this episode. She wakes up because John smacks her nose while they're sleeping and she's like, I'm going to go wander, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, and so I'm I, sorry, are you saying that I'm like Elsa? Is that, you're, is that what you're just laughing I, about I, to I, yourself? I, I was, yes, yes. I mean, I, okay, yeah. and you know what? When but someone when he call says you... To, when he says to her, don't go anywhere by yourself, it's not safe. And I she's know, like, and she says, yes, and then he says, I mean it. I know, <laughs> I know. I have definitely been on the receiving end of that exact conversation more than once. I appreciate that, and I think the fact that she can take that as the Elsa stand-in here in this conversation, the fact that she can take it from him to hear I mean it mm -hmm. and not be like shut your mouth the fact that she's like he knows me he knows I'm gonna go do something like this you know and is okay with that again speaks volumes you know we all want someone that's going to protect us and look out for us and I think for women if that is your father in a lot of situations especially the way it's portrayed on TV especially the way it's portrayed between Elsa and James this episode really demonstrated before Ennis's death and literally moments up into his death it had shifted where she had had transferred i put my protection of me in your hands she had shifted over to ennis and as part of that listening to him it was that it was the trust that she had placed with him no matter how well we may know them people give warnings all the time to other people like don't do that if i were you but we only listen to certain people and there was a real transfer of the trust of this one this person is is trying to protect me and keep me safe there's something very ironic when james says to ennis in the clip we played that's my heart you're running around with cradle it like an egg at the end of this episode it's elsa cradling ennis literally as as you know he's already died actually by the time she she gets to him and then and then it's her parents cradling her as she breaks down over his body kind of thing life and death is so fleeting and and i think this episode goes a long way of the the line between euphoria and grief is can be very very thin and and change you know tomorrow is not promised you have to make the most of the time you have today absolutely and no matter how much you love someone doesn't mean that that your relationship can't turn on a dime in, in a moment, especially young love, a new love. There's a sense of like we're in this protective bubble and and nothing and no one can change what's going on. And she kind of, you know, was spouting off to her parents and, and, you know, the fact that the whole camp knows and all this kind of stuff. There was a real sense of like, we don't know anything exists outside of us. And the fact that someone could come in and literally, you know, shoot through that force field and change everything in a second was just such a mind blowing moment for Elsa. Before we get to Margaret and Elsa, which I think is really necessary mm. to talk about, <laughs> let's let's finish off James and, and give him a grade. Because I feel like I've seen a lot of criticism or eye rolling that maybe James and the way he is handling his daughter's emerging sexuality is not believable. That no father would ever be so 
blasé and or okay with her hanging out with the cowboys and kissing on them. And, and, and I know it'll come out that he handles finding out about his daughter having sex and moving, moving into acceptance as fast as he does in, in the scene between Ennis and Elsa and himself. Is it believable to you? Are, it does, again, that's another question of did the show sell it for you? The second we saw James and the, and Elsa for the very first time together, she was so open and silly with him in a way that I was like, okay, so this dad is not one of those dads who's going to be overly formal with her. He didn't admonish her in any way for climbing off the back of the train, for doing all these little things that like 100% we knew were like not the way she should be doing things. Their relationship, I think we can't compare it to a lot of other ones we've seen on TV because very few dads would be okay with that. She has this kind of, I don't know, Pippi Longstocking kind of feel to her where she just kind of does things that she wants to do. And he's okay with that. Which is kind of a perfect segue into talking about Margaret, right? Because this episode ends with, uh, this episode begins rather with Margaret and James. Margaret waking up kind of in a snit. Now, remember the last time we saw Margaret, she had that horrible experience in the river where we left Mm -hmm. her literally as the last week's episode. She's looking off into the middle distance, looking very shell-shocked. Not a lot of time has passed when this episode begins there everyone is still dealing with the aftermath of that so she wakes up in a little bit of a snit and even with the cuteness of little john getting dressed by himself and all of that you know she makes a a snarky comment about how elsa has been in the field watching the herd all week james not reading the room correctly says well at least it's making her a hell of a cowboy she kind of like looks at him and witheringly says i didn't know that was the goal was to raise a cowboy here these two have a very different idea of of what they want their daughter to be. And this also goes back to, I think, the expectations of what this journey is, right? Margaret, Margaret's got a little bit of her sister in there, a little bit of Claire in there, where the civilization and the world that we knew in Tennessee was so much easier than this world we're embarking on. And I'm not completely sold that you're not selling us. I mean, Riza, at the end of this episode, uh, Joseph's wife, what is this place? Where are you taking me? The anguish. I feel Margaret is feeling that more and more. Whereas James and Elsa are like, we're cowboys, you know, like having this kind of great cowboy adventure. Margaret's like, what the actual fuck is happening here? I think additionally, there is this other element that, especially in this episode, was really highlighted about women. You know, we we touched on on the fact that Thomas, you know, as a black man is going to be treated different in society. In this one, different things like like bandits will take women. You know, the idea that women's choices you can work very hard and one choice can change your life completely and how you know you are dependent on is this guy going to stick around all these things there's a lot of separation of like you think that her being a cowboy is the same as you being a cowboy but it's not and let me explain why and margaret goes through and it's very spotty you really have to do a lot of work i think as the as the watcher to to collect all of those little moments but if you do there is a huge warning red flag that's saying women are not going to be treated the same. They certainly aren't now even in 2022. Decisions like children, like having sex with a man 
unprotected in a way that could create a child is going to change that woman's life for certainty and may or may not change the life of the man. There is like this whole other thing going on that I think Margaret's getting a little tired of James acting like it's okay for her to act the same as James. It's not. The consequences are different. Uh, Which takes us perfectly to our first clip to play between these two. I envy you. Coming a woman out here. No rules or worries or whispers about what you should do. There's no such thing as freedom, Elsa. Don't let anyone tell you there is. There's laws, there's rules, there's customs, responsibilities everywhere. And the more people you cram together, the more rules there'll be. I don't know what life is like in Oregon, but there'll be rules there too. This trail, as free as you'll ever be. The only rules you need to follow are the ones in your heart. Now, <laughs> I'm glad we're now, both like <clears throat> now. Now, well, well, here's well. What's your take on what's your take on? You don't even that? have to set me up on this one, okay? I think that this was the crappiest information a mom could have said to a daughter. I really well, if, you, if you're no, trying to get your daughter uh-uh. not to have to have sex, I think for sure it was the crappiest advice you could give. I think it was so foolish. I mean, if your child comes to you and is so bold and is so curious and is so honest as to say, please talk to me about sex, then please, parents, please, I beg of you, do not use metaphors and flowery language. Do not sit here and talk about the rules of your heart. What are you doing? She was... And then, and then, you know what? But to, but to add on to that, you're you're terrible, laughing so hard. But you know what is the worst about that is then to go have sex only to have your mother scream at you about I'm not going to raise that child and you made these choices and all this stuff. Where was that information in the river, Margaret? Why didn't you tell her? Listen to me. There are consequences that are so much bigger than you. You need to understand. Do you know anything about you know when a child is conceived? You know within your own you know cycle and stuff like that like she was asking you for hard and fast information and if your kid looks at you at the end of your conversation and says okay now you can tell me about sex and you glibly say to her oh no we just did fail you failed i'm sorry you failed if i'm elsa i'm taking that away my takeaway from that is Follow my heart. Follow my heart. My heart says, I'm going to go fuck that dude. Because because that's what her heart's telling her to do. Like, you know it is. I love him. And there's an and so long as I love him, nothing bad can happen. Right. That's what she basically said. Also, if you're going to do it, do it now while you're out here on the trail. Because this is this is this is freedom. Because when you get to Oregon, you're not going to be right. You can't go Mm -hmm. and and have sex willy nilly style up against a 
rock in the middle of a camp once you get to Oregon. Like, you can't do that. You have to do that here. Yeah, all the wrong messages, all of the wrong messages are the takeaway there. Very confusing, very just weird. Especially when moments before, just to, I mean, to, to piggyback on your point about asking for hard and fast information, she says, you've lived on a farm. You know how you know how babies are conceived. She Elsa says to her mother, I know how babies are made, but I don't know quite yet how that translates to humans. That's someone who needs concrete information about what is going to happen. There is there is no discovery via porn, you know, porn channels, no, you know, like we have now. Even, and I don't condone that. I don't either, but I was 11 but, at one point and it was informative. So. But, okay. <laughs> well, it was. My parents didn't down. I, I, my parents never sat down. I never had a sex talk with my parents. And it was sex ed wasn't taught in schools. Not before it was an age where you're already thinking about sex. My sex ed, I had already gone through puberty by the time I had sex education at school. And my parents parents never had a talk with me like i literally had to learn about what stuff was via media which is horrible but it is what it is and i think there are a lot of people who are learning that way i agree i i 100 agree and and again that's that's too bad and again why you know we've had a lot of discussions on other podcasts where we talk about like 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 bridgerton mm. you know that was this fair to even show when you know full well that young teenagers are getting information oh God, yeah. from this is it fair that people put out information that is totally wrong and try to act like it's it's accurate and, and that that's what they should expect under the whole umbrella of like women helping women, most especially in this super male dominated story beyond her being her mother, just woman to woman to not explain what's going to happen, to not explain the flood of emotions you're going to have, to not explain the literal attachment you're going to form to this other person. Men don't experience it the same way, but women chemically actually have like a rush that says like attached to this person. All these things happen that like, okay, I get it. If we're going to say, well, maybe Margaret was ignorant to all this information herself. It didn't have the words, didn't have the vocabulary, didn't have, you know, the right way to explain this to her. It just wasn't, you know, it certainly wasn't 2022 in terms of how we talk to our kids. Okay. But when your kid keeps asking you, you know, your kid's about to do it. You know that take it out of sex, say it's something else. If your kid keeps asking you what's going to happen if they like, you know, jump off a cliff, you might want to have a conversation about the true consequences of jumping off a cliff rather than be like, follow your heart. <laughs> like You wouldn't say that if they said, dad, what would happen if I if I jumped off a cliff? You wouldn't say the only rule you have to follow is your heart. Uh, it made me really mad to then come back to her later and be so angry at her. I think that was unbelievably cruel. Here is that clip, because I think it's important as a bookend to the, the whiplash moment of the before and after from Margaret's point of view here. You'd better be careful. Careful with what? You're a woman now, ain't you? And woman to woman, you'd better be careful. It takes years to make something of your life. One decision can change the course of it forever. And we don't know if that decision is going to be the one that sinks us until we make it. So you better be very, very careful what you choose. Freedom is anything but, Elsa. And every choice has things. Do you understand me? Yes, ma'am. 
were so past, ma'am. She's scolding her for things that very could have very should have been discussed in the lake the day before in the river the day before. You know, you know, you're a woman now, ain't you? I, maybe Elsa doesn't know what that means. You know, it's even crummy to then if your child tries to say, I, "I'm going to say, ma'am, to you in this moment because I'm trying to show respect to you in the in the vocabulary that you, mom, have taught me means I'm respecting what you say, and then you're gonna scoff at me." Because I tried to show you that I am listening to you and I do respect what you're telling me right now. Even that, I'm like, Margaret, you're like all about backhanded crap here. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I have a lot of issues with all of this. And I mean, I actually really like the episode theme, which Margaret herself is beating the drum on this idea of of freedom revisiting freedom again in the show but freedom now with consequences which was not consequences was not a word we had heard of um before and this episode really introduced the idea of consequences for our actions do you remember our conversation when you asked me what the definition of freedom was and if i felt like i knew what freedom was do you remember much about that discussion from way back at the beginning i very much do yes about freedom versus control freedom versus and independence right and most specifically responsibility women in particular i'm good i can only speak for that but women in particular have responsibilities in a way that the idea of freedom is very questionable there's very little things that i feel like i can do that doesn't have these consequences. And and really, I mean, if you think of it as the fangs of freedom, I most women could like, you know, lift up their their pant leg or their skirt leg or their shirt arm, whatever, and show you the fang marks of all the times they thought they were making a choice out of out of true freedom when in reality, you know, it ended up biting them because because it, it the world is set up for men primarily especially during this time and just generally because of reproduction i mean without birth control women are constantly at the mercy of whether or not you're going to get pregnant whether or not you know you can raise a child whether or not you can get a job and provide for that child so much of the world changed when birth control you know became acceptable for for people to use because women became more free Honestly, you know, they could make choices. One thing I think the show does really well is it comes back around to topics and themes that it has talked about before. I want to play Elsa's thoughts on what freedom was from episode two, where she goes out and, and does the cattle ride for the first time. Freedom. To most, it is an idea. An abstract thought that pertains to control. That's not freedom. That's independence. Freedom is riding wild over untamed land with no notion any moment exists beyond the one you are living. And then you have this episode where you have her mother talking about how freedom is actually a fiction because there are always rules. There are always customs, even here with your heart as being the only rules you need to follow. The idea that freedom doesn't really exist. But let's add now in 
consequences into it. And this is how, this is a little bit where she's come now. This is Elsa talking at the beginning of this episode about freedom and consequences. Right before you play this, I can I just say that when they said customs and traditions, boy, did I think of you in watching this because of how much I know that you appreciate rites and rituals in terms of how you bring people into a specific group. This idea that you're never, ever, ever going to be outside of that. Every group of people are going to have some sort of set of customs and traditions that you cannot mess with. And that alone already strips you of some of your freedom. So smart because a lot of people would say, well, but you know, you can live off the grid. You can live on, you know, you can somehow get away from the government, you know, per se, but there is, and if you, unless you are living singularly alone and you never, ever, ever interact with anyone anywhere in some like Siberia type place, any other group of people, you're going to start creating customs and traditions just accidentally almost, you know? And man, did I appreciate that whole, thank you for folding that in Taylor Sheridan, because I think that that part helps kind of like eliminate all those people who say, oh, no, 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 no. You could simply go to areas that were just, you know, not settled yet. Not really. There's still going to be groups of people. Before I play the clip from tonight, I think together with that freedom clip that I just played, I think you also have to play this no rules clip, this end of civilization entering a land of no rules clip. Also from episode one, because again, this all comes back around for tonight. So let's actually play that and then we'll play the opening thought on cities versus no man's land. So much I don't know about life. We learn to read, we learn rules, learn scripture and manners, and how to avoid saying or doing things that make others uncomfortable. All those things seem to be the opposite of life, seem to strangle it. But now, I'm sleeping on the edge of civilization, and soon we leave the edge behind. Then no rules. Then only life. What an adventure. What an adventure for all of us. What an adventure indeed, because just three weeks later, we get this opening clip. I think cities have weakened us as a species. Mistakes have no consequences there. Step into the road without looking, and the carriage merely stops or swerves. The only consequence, an angry driver. But here, there can be no mistakes. Because here doesn't care. The river doesn't care if you can swim. The snake doesn't care how much you love your children. And the wolf has no interest in your dreams. If you fail to beat the current, you will drown. If you get too close, you will be bitten. If you are too weak, you will be eaten. Though maps say we are still in Texas, the convergence of the main stem and the clear fork is where civilization ends. The land of no consequences behind us. We are in the land of no mercy now. Imagine having to live a life where you could make no mistakes. Because any mistake you do make very well may well spell your death or the death of a loved one. That's high stakes to live with all the time, isn't it? 
It is. I can tell you, you know, having having had preemies, there is a level of, you know, life or death decision making and choices that you're doing. I mean, my kids were on oxygen. Simple mistakes could have been disastrous. I do feel like, you know, there is this level of PTSD, you know, from from going through that there that that's actually like been studied that special needs families who have spent time in the NICU have the same level of PTSD as soldiers who went through war because of that life and death that any thing mm-hmm. I do could cause a death. I appreciate how when you have those stakes, how can you possibly feel free? Because you can't you can, really right? do anything. Right. You know, you you are actually probably even more hampered in making decisions because you know you have to take on all these other concerns. There has to be a little bit of not thinking about it all the way through or else you would be paralyzed. If right. James was really thinking through the pros and cons of everything he's doing with his family, they never would have left Tennessee. Uh, and on paper, how can you justify your daughter may be kidnapped by bandits and that's right. the that's the best that's the best bad thing that may happen right. you know she may now be with child and her betrothed is shot by bandits 3 weeks into the goddamn journey and she has she has not only the the grit now and the complete personality change that she avenges his death in front of everyone like herself right like not only was she like i'm not sure i should be carrying this pistol now she's like i'm gonna kill you in front of everyone she's emptying half of her six shooter into this man who was being restrained do you know that i was like girl don't use up all that ammo Like, you got the job done. Here's the irony of it, though, Caroline. You know, Wade says, I've ridden this country 15 years. What do you think? You know, talking about whether or not he knows how to use guns. You know, Shay turns to Ennis and he says, you know, I've never killed a man, but by God, I know how to. He ends up not killing a man, right? He wounds him. He shoots him. He knocks him off his horse. But the guy lands a fatal shot on Ennis. Ennis dies with never having killed a man. This this girl who showed up looking so pretty and prim on a train just three weeks ago has now killed a man in revenge in cold blood not even in self-defense not really she's murdered someone here who could have predicted that you know if you're if you're trying to write out the possibility of decision making and and consequences in some way i would say that that is the kind of stuff though that margaret was talking about is this man fit to actually take care of you and protect you and all these things and at the end of the day not to throw shade on ennis but man to man gun to gun he didn't make the shot you know, and yeah. so was he prepared to protect her point blank? No, he wasn't. He didn't have the skill set to to be the one to be able to protect her. I'm watching James go around and pick him off. That's somebody who's skilled and ready to be a father. Right. And and honestly, you know, for all of it, Margaret was a better shot than most of certainly the man. Right. I mean, there was a decent amount of stormtrooper pew pewing in this episode. A lot right. of a lot of bad aim, Star Wars level bad aim all around in this episode with the amount of bullets fired. I counted there were 12 people at least left behind. Maybe there were a couple of kids we didn't see, but Big Boy and his family that get left behind when those bandits murder them, they fire a ton more than 12 shots. Like they're just firing like 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 fish in a barrel in to that carriage that we don't see how many people are in there. These are not good shots, you know, but you have Margaret like fighting like a panther until James gets back to her, though. 
To be fair, guns, right, didn't have the best aim, aim during this sure. time. Especially either, on right? horseback, especially on horseback running, right? For sure. Right. Or just running in general. Like when Margaret was going, I mean, she's a lot of times she's she's walking or running while she's shooting. You know, there's a lot going on here. So I don't exactly blame them. But I would say that, you know, the Ennis versus the bad guy, they were pretty on equal footing, you know, right. or equal horseback, however you want right. to look at and it. And the bandit lands the shot that kills. And he didn't. And he yeah. didn't. He wanted to protect her. And I think he has to get credit for his heart you know to the extent he was capable he did he just wasn't capable enough in the end to protect himself uh, elsa's alive elsa has already avenged his death but he wasn't he wasn't capable enough to save himself in the end yeah and, and it's a tragedy I, in a way i was having a little moment because i feel this way about on gilmore girls sometimes where rory is like the anointed one of this town like it's not like she's the only teenage girl in this town but somehow she's just like the angel that everyone turns to right i feel that way a little bit in this exact scene where elsa has to go you know kill this man only because many of these people standing around her we watched them bury their loved one like the day before yeah the like hand over their mouths kind of situation of what is happening here and the the true like depth that everyone seems to be feeling Elsa's loss was like this elevated magical her loss is more important than anyone else's loss yeah but the camp just heard them all having sex the night before I know I, There's, know. I mean the community is invested in the way <laughs> you know it's like oh that those E and E you know like they're car- like people are carving yeah. their initials into a tree like E and E forever kind of thing and E squared E squared like just, and now now he's dead it's E you know divided you know and you know so I, I kind of get that plus there's one thing about the tragedy of the of nature rearing up I again I love the show I love how it anthropomorphizes everything nature is this thing out to get you to bite you to attack you and freedom and in this episode hammers homes a bunch of different ways the episode title you know freedom has fangs and and the idea that freedom will bite you it will it will mark you it will take it's a pound of flesh from you this clip from elsa after her standoff with her mother where she says i don't regret it mama it was beautiful i don't regret it again talking to us talking to herself she's ready to stand up to freedom and what it may bear um but of course she hasn't lost the love of her life at this point though either right and there is something obviously about tragedy kind of romeo and juliet-esque moment here of just of just this shouldn't have had to have happened you you hate to see that happening to young people it it does obviously hurt your heart in a different way it does for sure let's listen to this clip this is where elsa maybe more to herself than anything else is talking about how she's ready to live with the consequences but given the end of this episode is she freedom freedom is accepting consequences embracing them wrapping them around you like a blanket i choose to love him I choose to let him love me. If the consequence is a child, I'll choose to love that too. 
at the end of the day, I still don't know what freedom is, honestly, except for it seems to be fucking chaos and unpredictability <laughs> and something that is going to hurt you more than anything else. It is this intangible motivation, like right. hope, like love. You know, it's this intangible motivation that keeps you going. It keeps you putting one foot in front of the other. And no one actually reaches the pinnacle of that concept of hope, of love, of freedom. You just strive for it. And that hopefully every day, you know, has you making choices that makes you happier, that makes, you know, things in your life go better. But it's all that you're always going to miss it. Like it's always going to fall through your fingertips because it's fleeting. Every single bit of those things are fleeting. What do you think of the idea of Elsa? We touched on that. We touched on the fact that she kills in this episode. Mm-hmm. And she says that by doing in that we played earlier, by doing that, maybe she's going to regain a little bit of her color in her world. Mm. But as a character, as character development, how did you feel the fact that they have Elsa take a life versus maybe James doing it for her or even Margaret doing it for her? But the fact that she does it, are you a fan of that? Does that hurt the character's development? Does it add layers to it? I mean, I think, again, like I said, it's a hard left turn. Like, she can't go back from that. And it also shows you that with all of the conversation they had with James about uh, talking to John, about the deer, about every time you take a life, there there's some part of you that hardens. You have to regain your humanity in some way. They have prepared us for what this could do to Elsa, that once you take a life, there's a part of you that is no longer the same. So much of it has been laid so clearly at our feet of like, do you see what's happening to this character? And I think that's a lot why James kind of, you know, you see the anguish in his face and looking away after she kills him because there's that sense of like, oh man, you know, you can't go back from that. And while on on some part you're, you know, maybe you're proud that she is capable, but your heart breaks because she never should have been in that position. And you know, you can't go back from that. Um, It's a, it's a lot. I mean, I'm going to give you this other example example that's going to be so so weird but when i was in premature labor the doctor was like well just let these ones go basically have these twins let them pass and then you can just have another baby and that concept what are you talking about once once you do that you were a mother to two babies who have passed like you can't undo that you can't just have another baby and replace that situation you know like that's not how this works there's certain turning points of like once this happens you can't go back and and taking someone else's life, I think 100% is that. I started off when we were talking about Margaret, talking about how she's mad at James and Elsa for this cowboy free life that they seem to be living. And here she is having to be the straight man and worry about the facts and figures. But in the in the river, she says, you know, I'm envious of you. I wish. And then later on says, I wish I could see the world from through your eyes. But I know at some point you're going to see it through mine. And that makes my heart break. I, I think this idea of envy is really pertinent to margaret's character i think she really wants to be elsa carefree elsa i think she really misses that aspect i think she really wants to be able to have that kind of life adventure on this particular journey something she probably didn't get to do growing up and coming of age in tennessee in a set suburban or urban lifestyle as much as it is possibly in Tennessee versus this journey. How much do you think envy and jealousy is really fueling Margaret's relationship with her daughter here and her kind of prickly 
kindness towards how Elsa is conducting herself. Think about it. Like when she shows up with the pants and her cutoff dress, you know, she, she says, not your worst idea. She doesn't, she won't give her a compliment. She's very, she won't give her a compliment to her face. We've seen her compliment her writing to, to James in private. She seems very kind of jealous of her daughter. No, I think envious is fair. Jealousy to me has too much of a negative con- connotation. I think you can be envious in in terms of like her life has already seen so many you know twists and turns herself. You know it's impossible again to go back. Like you know you can't can't unwrite those chapters for her. And so it's okay to be envious. I I think that you know her carefree nature is something that people do wish that they still had, wish that they, how about I say it like this, wish that they hadn't gone through so many bad things. So to be at such a blank slate as Elsa is at, that's not exactly the same thing as being jealous. It's it's not, it's not that kind of like, I wish I was you. It's more like, I wish that, you know, I hadn't been witness to X amount of tragedies or X amount of bad things that had happened. You know, it would be nice to go back to that place, to that blank slate place where you have so much less to worry about. But at the same time, there's also this protectiveness that I think that comes out where you don't want your child to have to witness the same things you did, have to go through the same experiences you had. So there's also this like element of like, I want you to know, and that's what I was kind of getting in the river. I want you to know everything, but she, the way she holds back is also this game of, But at the same time, I don't want you to be as jaded or be as worried or as confused or, or, you know, just scared as I am as an adult. Because if I kind of tell you all the boogeymen, all the monsters under your bed, things that could happen, I'm going to start erasing your carefreeness. I'm going to start writing on that blank slate, all the things you need to worry about. And I don't want to do that to you. So how do I give you the information, give you the consequences, give you the stuff you need to prepare you. And at the same time, not scare you about the world, not, not create the obstacles for you to still feel free. What a weird place to be, you know, where she's so capable and so able to do things. And yet you're, you're trying to almost save her from herself and from life. Uh, That's impossible though. It's an impossible task. No, no, it is. It is. But it's something we all feel. I mean, I know you feel that way as a parent. You, you, you want to keep them from making any of the mistakes that you ever made, but also if you can stop any of the obstacles, you would. But are you doing that to their detriment? Then when they do hit the next obstacle, will they be incapable of handling it? Will they crumble themselves because they've never done it themselves? Did you save them from anything? Ah, it's so hard to be a parent. <laughs> and I don't know that that's envy slash jealousy as much as just this like, you know, rock in a hard place of like, I, you know, I love that you're so excited about life. How do I make you cautiously optimistic? You've actually given us a great segue to Che, Thomas, and Joseph, and once again, the topic of leadership, because this idea of, I tell you what to do, and you don't listen. I give you rules, and you ignore them. What am I supposed to do? I am not your leader. Very prevalent. Very much, Shay is in a very paternal spot in this episode. Joseph comes at him in a very, you're, you're the father of this group kind of way, and Shay and Thomas on Shay's behalf is like, no. 
no, 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 that's not our role here. And by the way, everything that we're asking you to do and telling you to do, you're ignoring anyway. So fuck that, you know, and Shay has the ability to just hand people back their money uh, and, and say, if you follow us, I'll kill you. You can't really say that to your kid, right? You can't say you ignore me. I give you advice. You go and do it anyway. I'm trying to keep you from harming yourself and, and saving you from pain of life, but you do it anyway, you know, off with you. You really can't do that to your kids. I guess some parents do. But these parents can't do that. In both cases, and I think this is like the same pattern we're seeing with both of them that is banging my head against the wall. Shay can say, I gave you rules and you won't follow it. The, all the food in one wagon after you didn't check the wagons of what they were bringing the, at the beginning. I'm sorry. You are being a terrible guide. Yes. I don't understand it. And same with Margaret. You can't tell me she gave good information and then Elsa went and made a bad, bad choice. She gave her no information. She gave her flowery, confusing information. And then she went ahead and did something. And now you're going to scream consequences. Both Shay and Margaret did the same thing. I gave you confusing, vague instructions. Super vague. At the best. And then when you do something that you think you're making the right choice. Joseph's reason of we're not all friends, we're not all family, we thought the best thing to do in order to have trust with one another was to put it all in one place. And that way everyone could feel like they all knew where their stuff was. We thought we were doing the right thing. We weren't going against anything. I, I was following my heart, as Elsa would say. Right. right? And then now the you're going to yell at me. The only rule that matters out here, Caroline. It's the only rule right. that matters. Is, and is, then you're yes. going to yell at me about consequences after something happens? Come on. I mean, that's terribly unfair. And ironically, if you remember, I think it was last week's episode. I said that the that the immigrants were more like children or blank slates mm-hmm. who would listen if you would just tell them what the consequences would be. Stop treating them like they're just ignorant and they can't learn. That's not true. They want to learn. And now and, and again, the same mistakes are being made. And Shay's looking at Joseph and saying, well, you're the one making the mistakes. Shay, at what point is he going to say, you know what? I think I'm actually giving them the information in a way that isn't making sense. Right. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, think back to the episode, the 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 very first episode where he tries four different ways to say that there are no, you know, they set up a latrine downriver, right. and, and it's like it's a it's it's like a three minute clip on what a latrine means, and it ends up being a French word for toilet, you know, toilet. And you're telling me that someone could be like I'm going to say quietly panting in the grass, and everyone in the camp can hear them, but. You, Shay, don't notice the entire camp loading one wagon with all the food. You don't hear or see that. Right. happening right and, really and, uh, right exactly and you know it's like one of those things and this is a parenting style though where you know parents will some there are some parents that watch their kids it's called natural consequences yeah it's it's very survival of the fittest very darwinian yeah i see them putting all their food in a wagon you know what that fucking wagon's gonna sink because it's too goddamn heavy and since we didn't spread it out you've now used up all your supplies Right. It's, you know, this is the lesson of Oregon Trail. <laughs> right. We all it, die it, in it, it gives, Right. Exactly. All die in <laughs> Or this is, this is the, you know, everyone jokes about that, but I have, I have a gift I keep on my phone. You shot a hundred pounds of buffalo meat. You can carry three pounds. 
Right. Why'd you let like me that? shoot a hundred pounds of buffalo meat? God damn it. <laughs> right. Right. It all rotted. <laughs> right, exactly. You've wasted all of your time. That's Shay. That's Shay and, and the immigrants. It's like, yeah, we watched you do it and we said, Don't make the shit too heavy. What'd you think when we were talking about you couldn't bring your piano? This invisible line of we will parent you so far, but then we will also watch you make mistakes if you go beyond that and you don't take right. us in a very literal way. That being said, I feel like this is the first episode where Joseph really does step up and becoming a leader. So is is Shay and Thomas's natural selection parenting style finally starting to take hold here? I mean, I guess in some way. I mean, the the sad thing is that it truly is the epitome of natural selection and yeah. that it's not just you know, small consequences, it's people are dead, you know? And so that those are that's the biggest consequence you could possibly face. You're dead now. Much like the Oregon Trail came. <laughs> right. For me, it wouldn't be worth it to do it this way. I mean, yes, there are some things that I will let my kids have a natural consequence at, but there's other things that the stakes are too high. If you are going to say to them, if you're just screaming in their face, my job is to keep you safe. My job is to show you the path. How are you keeping them safe if they have no food? Beg to differ that that you've done what it takes to keep them safe. Making the wagon too heavy with all the food, you didn't do what kept them safe. And that's not micromanaging. You're not sitting there trying to be like, who ate the, you know, whatever, the corn today or something. Like, no, you're that's not micromanaging to say, don't put all the food on one wagon. Come on. I really threw my head back. And then to have Shay crying at the beginning. He is that struck by how how much they're failing, Mike. He is just crying over how much they're failing and then is yelling at them. Okay, what? I mean, we've talked about this since the very first episode. And I said to you, I don't think these guys have ever done this before. And I got to tell you, five (laughs) episodes in now, I'm not convinced that they have. This seems like the first time that they've done this for the Pinkertons. I don't know what they've done Previously, maybe it was just straight security watch or, or, or bodyguard work or something like that. Every episode has just cemented my feeling that they have never done this trip with with a party before. I get very much that they understand the land, that they have been through this land, but I don't feel like they have ever guided a group of immigrants from point A to point B before. I mean, him crying and, and it was very emotional, you know, watching him cry and, and Thomas assuming it's because he's missing his wife and his daughter. And he says, no, I miss them every day. This is something more, you know, we're making too many orphans. We're making too many widows. I got to tell you, I was a little put off by Thomas's response in this scene. He's a little cold hearted, which seemed not very Thomas like, you know, he makes this comparison. What's any different? We knew they were going to die. You know, what's any different about when you would send a soldier over a hill to die? You didn't cry for that guy. And Shay turning around says, the hell I didn't. That seemed like a really weird assumption for Thomas to make. Did, did that strike you as weird that he would assume that Shay, Shay seemed very much like a person who would cry over dead soldiers under his command? I think it's different, especially in a war situation where everybody has a gun, a weapon, right? They, in theory, know how to use it and they are facing, you know, their mortality and they are being told to go, you know, over a hill in this case versus women and children and confused adult men (laughs) who have not been given all of the instruction, who don't know the consequences of their actions. And then you're telling them to cross a river. 
those two things feel different to me. And and I can see why you would cry more about the innocent lives lost than the men who were so brave and, and did go, you know, looking death in the eye and they went knowing it was a chance they were going to die. I don't think those women and children, especially, really grasped the mortality rate of the river crossing. Mm. And, and that part, I think, is why you cry harder is because it's like, you know, lemurs jumping to their death like they don't know they're gonna die they're not doing it because they know they're gonna die they don't know they're gonna die they're doing it because someone or something instinctually is telling them to do it so there's something about that innocence that lack of understanding that your heart breaks for it's sadder to me I thought it was odd that he would equate these people dying the same with sending soldiers to die. But my my bigger issue was that he wouldn't know that Shay would mourn those losses. The idea that Shay didn't shed a tear for people lost under his command, even though he sent them to die. Not not that there is a difference between mm-hmm. these people not knowing the lemurs jumping to their death and the immigrants not knowing about the river crossing versus soldiers who wake up every day knowing they may not be alive live at the end of that day that i agree with you thomas was being so cold and 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 calculated about it like we knew x number of people were going to die it's no different than sending soldiers to die it seemed very cold one of thomas and two to not understand that shay actually in fact felt the death of all those soldiers under his command you know as a captain sending people to die you have to know, Shay. Shay, we've only known Shay for a short time. I would definitely think Shay is is shedding tears, maybe in private, obviously not crying in front of the men, not weeping, you know, right. and wailing and gnashing his breath, you know, his teeth and beating his breast. But in the quiet moments when you know him, that side of him too, Thomas, to not know. I mean, when he says the hell I did and core, I, I feel that, you know, it, it seemed, it seemed off to me. It seemed Thomas was being a little too cold in that moment to me. It definitely exposed some sort of disconnect between the two of them that, you know, maybe Shay has had a big change in the way that he was during the war. And maybe he didn't, you know, show any signs of this type of personality trait. Whereas, you know, after losing his own family and then after really, you know, the wear and tear of this trip and seeing these people be lost, you know, maybe it affects him now in a different way than it did during the war. And, you know, maybe he didn't mourn it in the same way. I agree with you that it was surprising to see Thomas be so sharp and harsh with his words. How are you in one second saying you could die at any second? And then again, crying about those deaths in a way like you didn't know they were going to happen. I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. I don't think you can't mourn a death that you knew was had a high potential of happening, you know, and that's sort of what Thomas is saying. Like, if you knew that they were likely to die, why are you crying about it? There's still a loss there. You know, you're not uh, you're not foolish for for being sad that they didn't make it. We're witnessing a man who's nearing the end of his own journey spiritually emotionally physically like you can see that like there's a plenty of people as they get older who cry more easily who you know have they see the world in a different light you know and i think if we're looking at elsa and the way that her eyes see things the way that margaret's eyes see things i think that shay's eyes see things differently um as he's getting older and i think that that's fair you know i think thomas is being harsh i i loved how you framed that because that was one of my points of view that 
that I had on John Dutton, Kevin Costner, John Dutton in this current season of Yellowstone that just ended was exactly that, that John is getting older and, and looking at his mortality. He's, he's looking at his life, you know, in, in the rear view, whereas other people, Beth and, and the, and Casey and the other kids, uh, you know, Jamie and all that are uh, at different points in their life. And people had complaints about this. John Dutton is not the John Dutton we know. He's being nice to Summer Higgins, this, this eco terrorist. And he's, he's changing up how he has always lived that now we have morality in our war. And my feeling on that all was John is looking at the end of his life. He's looking back on his decisions. And whereas he maybe had a cold steel glint in his eye, even, you know, a few years ago, he almost died. He has looked death down. He has stared him in the face. He has played poker with him in the bunkhouse of life. And it's different now. And I feel, I think you're right. I think Shay is just a different man now, especially in light of the loss of his wife and daughter. Is He's looking at life differently. He's looking at life. Everything is viewed through the lens of mortality. What death is, uh, is, is on our conscience and what deaths are not on our conscience. I think there's a lot of similarity between the shade we see in this episode and Kevin Costner, John Dutton in the current season of Yellowstone, just for people to think about. What do you think of the argument? Thomas makes these deaths aren't our fault. Chase says we were responsible for them. They are our fault. Where do you come down on that? In terms of whose fault is it only in terms of being able to prevent the next death? That is the only way that I would apply that. It's not really about pointing fingers in terms of like, well, we should have, could have, you should feel guilty, blah, blah, blah. Not like that. More like, okay, we're going to cross another river, no doubt. How can we do this better? You know, how can we make sure that the next group doesn't lose so many people? That would be the only reason why it's fair to look and, and question why did this happen. Otherwise, this is one of those situations where you do the best you can with the information you have at the time and you hope and pray that it goes okay. I don't think that there's anything to be gained from just, you know, who's going to take responsibility for this kind of guilt business. Do you think that they learned something, though? I mean, if with Thomas taking the position of people die, you know, we we're, there's only 43 of you left. You know, 18 people have died. We learned in this episode, uh, eight men, six women, four children, 18 people dead, 43 at the start of this episode. There's only 31 left in the party at most at the end of this episode. Who's going to be alive by the time they get to the Red River, which is going to be the next big <laughs> river that they, you know, to get in Oklahoma? Fair question. So do I think that anyone is actually learning a lesson? Do I think that anything's actually changing? In a way, I mean, seeing Joseph actually take some responsibility for the group for pointing out who are the problem people and, and actually confronting them, you know, that is a big change. And and that that does go to the, well, whose responsibility is this? Who Like, let's, let us actually go through the exercise of pointing figures because we don't want to keep reliving the same stupid pattern over and over again. Yeah, I mean, to that end, I think that that, that was an important thing to do to start, like, actually calling out those who are, who are doing more harm than good. And to keep getting up when you're getting your ass beat. There is a nobility to keep getting up when, even if you can't win a fist fight, to keep standing up to the guy who's punching you to the ground every time is very character building. I give Joseph a lot of credit for that. 
I agree. And 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 he was incredibly brave, him and Risa both, to be, you know, the ones who are going to sit there and be the, you know, the trap, the bait, if you will. Bandit bait, yeah. BBs. They were the old BBs in this episode. That's very brave. Yes. That's very brave. And, very leadership-like. And, very leader-like. Right, and you're right. And finally taking the responsibility that in order to end, you know, this cycle, somebody is going to have to, to put on their leadership hat and be that. And I give them a lot of credit for that. And Risa's response to the whole thing is exactly how I would feel. Yeah. I'd be like, what is happening? I thought for sure this she had been insane. shot when he runs Me to her. Too. And then, no, she's just anguished. She is just so fucking over this journey. Because it's so horrifying. Can you imagine? No, I cannot imagine, Caroline. <laughs> I cannot imagine what these people are going through. It's insane. I, I agree with you. Flipping all the way back around to that whole part about then admonishing Elsa for, you know, wanting to have sex or wanting to experience love or anything. The extremes of this of this episode of of these horrors that they're dealing with to this like huge you know um sort of culmination of love and lust and romance and all those things i mean god this episode was a lot it was intense it had everything i mean there was there was laughter for sure but there was a ton of tears and and anguish in this episode by a lot of different characters. Shay and Thomas, when after Joseph says he's going to point out who it is to, to Big Boy, as I was referring to him in the notes, he goes and pulls James into it. And then Risa and Joseph square off against Big Boy and his wife. And, and big props to Risa for coming in with the frying pan to the fucking head. I loved it. Even though she immediately gets taken to the ground, pulled by her hair. You know, Thomas moves in to break up the fight when Joseph continues to get punched to the ground. Shay stops him and says, let them figure it out on their own. James only lets it go so far and then then takes matters into his own hands. Is Shay continuing to kind of secretly manipulate James into investing him among the group? Either because he sees that James is actually a good leader that they will follow, or just because he is he wants James to be invested in this group so that he stays and continues to help. Man, I want to give Shay the credit that he would be so crafty as to get James, you know, so carefully woven into the group. I mean, nothing else points to that at this point. Well, I he mean, keeps bringing I, him I into these arguments. To. He keeps bringing him into these arguments. Now, he, has, he needs he needs manpower. I mean, he true, needs like literal true. numbers, you know, and, and that's. I mean, that's where I think it lies. I would love, I mean, I'm saying I would love for there to be a shred of evidence that shows me some strategic choices that we see Shay making because I would listen to that. And I, I'm not in any way taking up a position that he is not a smart or thoughtful man. I just don't see a track record for him being that strategic in his choices i think that they always need more manpower every single time they've pulled any of the duttons in it's because they literally need more hands on deck here's here's the only evidence i would point to that episode that whole episode happens in the beginning and this is not the first time that james has you know asserted his weight amongst the group and he is i mean imagine to the immigrants who this guy is and his family right they don't stay near them they're always off to the side though daughters having sex 
checks in the camp. Like, how? what a weird family the Duttons must be to these immigrants who don't understand America, don't understand English. But then you have this episode, James, you know, he goes, he's like, you're going to eat this all yourself, big boy, which made me laugh out loud. James really settles the matter. I mean, Joseph stands up and really takes the reins of leadership for the first time, but it's James who actually ends the matter. It's not too long later, we're having that conversation about rations. And James pointing to the fact that these people look like they're starving already. And Thomas and, and, Jane, and Shay and Thomas talk about how they've kicked in their rations to the larger group already. And Shay turns to James and says, you're going to kick in your rations? And again, James starts where he's been all along. No, no. My family, my rations, that's their problem. I'm not, we're not a part of that group, right? I didn't sign on to kick in my rations. By the end of that conversation, he has set out a price that Shay is more than willing to meet. I will kick in my rations as long as you get a cook with his own wagon and the skill to drive it so that you don't repeat this. That is huge movement that Shea has gotten, a huge concession that Shea has gotten from James. That was unthinkable three weeks ago, five episodes okay, ago. Okay, so can I point out what I think is a huge difference between this conversation and previous conversations? The big one is they gave the why for their decision-making. Previous decisions, they would say things like, I'm the one who's making the decision. I say jump, you say how high. And James never responded to that. And I, we said that back in those conversations. That's not the way to talk to James Dutton to get anything out of him. Now, in this conversation, he brings up, you know, slaughtering some of the cattle. And when they say we can't, but let me explain why. Once we get past Kansas, there's not going to be another place to stop for an entire month. So we have to save the herd for that part. That respect of saying, I hear you. And this is what we talked about. What makes a good leader? Taking into consideration consideration what the what the other experienced skilled people have to say around you giving that feedback listening and saying i hear what you're saying let me explain why it won't work let me explain to you what we plan to do and when we plan to use the herd that is when james softened and said okay fine you gave me a rational reason so let me say what i expect back you hire this i will i will kick in then that to me was an honest leadership circle of give and take that provided James an opportunity to be a part of the decision making. And then he was willing to participate. But that's the first time that Shay and Thomas actually gave information back. Right. They didn't just hold their ground and say, because I said so. You know, that's a huge difference between the way that the dynamic is. Very much so. It was the first time that they treated him as, as an equal versus just someone who was an equal, but they didn't treat that way. And they were just trying to give bark commands to. But I think there, I, I think there's an aspect to it and i think i'm thinking about it because in the road west special tim mcgraw talks about how james's character arc will have him getting more and more invested in this group of people who he originally was not invested in their lives at all so i think that's maybe coloring my bias my you know, or shaping bias here on my part him interceding in that affair amongst the immigrants becoming very visible to all of the assembled right everyone in campus watching this happen with big boy and his wife and his companion being refunded their cash shay saying you follow us i'll kill you uh, it's james who climbs 
climbs into the wagon and takes out the stolen supplies. James is getting more and more involved, you know, mm-hmm. as much as he's moving away a couple episodes ago, because as if contagious is, uh, as if ca- carelessness is contagious, here mm-hmm. we have him climbing into the wagon of one of these immigrants taking food. We had seen, we had seen Shane Thomas do that, but now James is doing that. That's the perfect time to prime him for that conversation. He's invested now. See, his his rations could have easily have been among those rations. That's true. That's absolutely true. And no, you're right. There, you know, there's been a steady, you know, movement towards a give and take that, you know, James had to put a little more skin in the game. I think it also helped that Elsa, you know, as the Dutton clan member had been spending so much time with the, with the herd as mm-hmm. much as that is being frowned upon by Margaret. Right. You know, I do think that Shay and Thomas see that skin in the game too and recognize that there's you know, ownership there. Right. Everyone's right. trying to help. And I think that things changed after the river crossing. You know, you have Margaret with that huge scratch down her face that she's still sporting it's dramatic i mean it feels scar that feels like a scar uh i I almost kind of want to look at the flashbacks from yellowstone and see if she has the remnants of it because they're deep it looks like it look like cat scratches they're they're the woman's fingernails i know i know but that's that's, dramatic across her eyeball i mean to think about that that she's gonna see that every single time she looks in the mirror the rest of her life you know i mean that is a huge huge way to depict that for this character since they all went through this tragic event together you know they saw what went on with margaret they they saw everything how much that that you know james and and everyone was lending a hand i mean that to me was also a huge moment of being invested into the group you know they were literally holding each other's hands to get across that river so the duttons have again shown more skin in the game you're right in terms of storytelling it has unfolded where there is more of a reason to trust them more of a reason to allow their opinion to hold more water i'm i'm good with it i mean i see it shay is a he has a complicated guy you know i i came in because it's sam elliott Wanting to love him 150%. You know, he's a flawed man who has a lot of things going on in his own mind, in his own heart. And I think that they've done a great job of portraying someone who is conflicted constantly. You could see some part of him wants to run screaming into the woods some yeah. nights, you know? Right. And and you can just feel that pull of like, I just can't have this. But also that caretaker part of I can't let these people fail. You know, he takes it all so hard and also wants to choke them all out you know it's very complicated i can see why when we had the interview with sam elliott and we were talking to him and you know at the time we were not invested in this character at all because this is the very beginning of 1883 now his anguish about the character makes so much more sense to me yeah it's so hard to to wrap your head around shea brennan he's he is a tough tough guy we don't have an interview in this episode, so I think we should probably end with just some rapid fire thoughts uh, as, as we wrap up this uh, supersized episode for the mid-season cliffhanger. Do you think now with the death of Ennis, does Wade move to the front more? Uh, as a capable cowboy. And then in this episode, we learn that Wade knows how to track. He's able to uh, establish that there are at least six horses following them. We had last episode talking about how he knows what the deal is in Kansas. It's a guy who knows things, but has really been overshadowed because he's the third wheel in Ennis and Elsa's love story a lot. Do you think we see more Wade 
I think it has to be that that we see more weight just because there's going to be such a huge void in, you know, the cowboy sort of arena, if you will, especially if Elsa's hanging out with the herd still. Now that will be remain to be seen. Will she choose to stay with them? Will that be too difficult to, for her? If we shift away from the herd and back more to camp, I don't know that Wade does play such a big role. But if, if she does stick with the herd, I mean, she's got to have somebody to interact with. So I mean, they left her to hold the herd when Ennis went off to fight the bandits right she was literally now holding the herd by herself because margaret was with the immigrants and this went off wade was in the initial posse that went to you know round up the bandits from behind they, everyone is trusting this 17 year old girl with this 50 head of cattle so yeah i, I imagine that's going to continue more and more and I, I i have to think there have to be scenes grief scenes between elsa and wade a talking about Ennis. Yeah, and it would not be a surprise to me if Wade steps into those shoes. Did you scream as loud as I did when John, knowing there are bandits in the area, John just tells, James just tells John to get in the wagon and hide? Don't leave John in the wagon with three exclamation points. I don't know where you leave him, though. You put him I on mean, the horse and you take him with. You always take oh, them with. And I don't know. He, I don't because know. he's being shot at at the horse, you know? And then we don't see John again. I was like, I, I, I guess it's fine because night has fallen now, right? The 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 thing with Big Boy has has played itself out. Margaret says, "I'm going to go check on my kid." When Wade says, "Are you going to ride? You know, stay with the herd with us?" You know, Mrs. Dutton. So I presumably John is okay, but I mean, you just you just go tell him to hide in a wagon. They're trying to set him up a little bit as he's growing a little, he's changing a little, he's becoming a little more capable with that whole little like I haven't had much practice getting dressed. That whole thing was very. I dressed cute. myself, Mama, and he did. Very he even had this. Suspenders on, even though one was off the shoulder. But and all those little buttons, that's hard for a little guy. I give it's him hard a lot for of me. I'm 43. <laughs> I like zippers. Zippers I give him a lot so- of credit. I don't, I don't think you can put him on the horse with the man who is going to be getting shot at. Like, I I, you know, if fair. anyone, you know, I don't know where you put him. I think I put him under as much things as I can in the wagon and be like, do not make a sound, <laughs> you know? Prickly prayer fruit, the fruit of the cactus. I think we can say Margaret Dutton discovered that uh, mm. in this episode. Okay. Uh, I, have you ever had the prickly pear fruit of, of the cactus? Yes. I, I, is it is it delicious? Because it looked pretty good, and I like I like sweet fruit like that. It seemed like it would be a sweet fruit. I've had it as candy, so I don't know how much sugar they added. Prickly pear uh, fruit candy. So I don't know. I don't know how super sweet it is directly off of the cactus. I haven't had it like that, but the candy is good. It's like it's very um, flavorful, watery. It definitely you could get the idea of of why it would provide some amount of hydration, if you will. Sure. I looked only because Margaret mentions that she can make a jelly or a jam out of it. I can't remember if she says jam or jelly, but you can buy prickly pear jelly on the internet. So if you too want to live like the Duttons of 1883. Uh, I can buy it at my grocery store. Okay. I don't think I can do that in New York. So Yeah. Uh, my local HEB has uh, Texas prickly pear jelly. So, Well, I feel like we all have Margaret Dutton to thank for that discovery. So You're hilarious. I think people before for her probably used it but but for sure Elsa mentions how the wolf doesn't care about your dreams. I, all I could think was, I think Casey Dutton would very much disagree with Elsa there. I think the wolf very much cares about your dreams and, and plays a large part in them. Uh, I, I took that line as a direct little shout out to Yellowstone, especially given how the season four ended. 
Um, let's talk geography. So, so we learned from Elsa in the beginning of the episode that they crossed the Brazos, uh, mm-hmm. right north of where the Clear Fork meets the Brazos. The clear stem of the Brazos River meets the main stem of the Brazos River just south of Graham in Texas, Graham, Texas. Look, if you drive three hours straight north, you get to Burke Burnett, which is one of the two places that Thomas says that they should resupply. It's right on the Red River, right on the Oklahoma-Texas border. It is directly straight north. Shay says we're going to go to Dones, but it is 50 to 75 miles west, west and slightly north of where Burke Burnett is. Which, I'm going to stop you real quick, is most likely pronounced Burnett, just because we say cement <laughs> and insurance. Burnett is a road in Austin, like it's it's a it's a name we know, so it's it's just for Carol Burnett. Me. So uh, so Burke Burnett, yes, it's interesting to me, and I have to imagine it's because of Native Americans and reservations and 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 this no man's land that they keep talking about. It, does that make sense to you? Why Shay would have them going slightly more west? To and and slight, it's a further trip. It's a it's a slightly longer trip to go to Dones versus going straight north because straight north at this time is also heading more into Native American territory. Does that does that make sense to you? I do trust Shay that he does you know understand the the land and that that if this is what he thinks is probably the best thing, I go for it. I had told you that there was something about it that I thought that they would stay more in Texas. As opposed to like, because they, they could get into Oklahoma earlier if they don't go so far west. But there's something about the love of the land of Texas that I thought they would actually kind of hug into Texas more. So then that doesn't surprise me that they're going to head more west than what would seem necessary. But on the same hand, Thomas also, instead of Burke Burnett, he also suggests that they could go to Goodnight Ranch. Now, now Goodnight Ranch, the historical from the 1800s Goodnight Ranch, is deep in the panhandle or north in the panhandle handle like near what's Amarillo today and that would make it the furthest trip from where they go the furthest west and the furthest north of the three places listed so that was kind of odd to me that Thomas would suggest that that seems way out of the way but I thought it was kind of cool though that the Goodnight Ranch you know was the Goodnight family it was a historical cattle ranch from this time I think it was founded in the 1850s or 60s three real historical places Doan's Crossing was really interesting to me because that was a real established trading post, which is why Shea is saying they can resupply there. It's going to take them about a week to get there. But it was part of the cattle crossing path that became, after the Civil War, uh, Jonathan Doan and his family, formed by his nephew Corwin Doan, they established this, what became really a city. It even had a post office for a limit for a little bit of time. It became, before the railroads replaced the cattle drive system, uh, it was the crossing of the Red River. That's why this all is important, because Burke Burnett and Doan's are both right on the Red River. Well, Doan's is actually just south of the Red River, which is going to be the next river that they cross to get into Oklahoma. For people that are wondering why, that's what they're talking. They're, now we're, we're, we're looking ahead to go into Oklahoma. 
Jones was interesting because it really was for the people driving cattle from Texas to Kansas, which is essentially what these guys are doing, right? They're doing really more of a historical cattle drive than an Oregon trail drive at this point. Jones became the place to cross the Red River at. They kind of regulated the crossing there by setting up this little city and charging money. They made the banks of the river. They would lay down hay so you could cross cattle. You could cross wagons. There was a trading post there so you could you could resupply your provisions. So really nice little historical uh, place to point out. If you go to okhistory.org, there's actually a a nice three-paragraph, I'm not going to sit here and read it to you, about Doan's Crossing. I suggest everyone go out there and uh, read that just so you can understand the historical markers that they're putting in the show a little bit more. It seems like they're abandoning Abilene because they would have to go south from where they are now to get to Abilene. So no talk of Abilene or resupplying in Abilene at this point. The main person who ever said Abilene was... Elsa, once she was trying to convince her to take the gold. So, you know, there wasn't really any any true reason to think that they were actually going to take that route. It was just something that she said. Corwin Doan, he actually kept records uh, and journals of the amount of cattle that moved through there. The actual journals were lost in a fire. They're, they had published some newspaper articles at different points about uh, the numbers that he had kept track of. And in 1879, the passing cattle numbered 110,000. 1881, just two years later, 301,000 heads of cattle crossed from Texas into Indian Territory in Oklahoma through Doan's Crossing. It tripled the amount of cattle crossing there. I'm expecting a semi-bustling town when we get to Dones or we resupply there sometime in the back end of uh, the season. It'll be fascinating to see some little society since we really only saw Fort Worth and that was definitely like a rowdy place with pretty much, you know, uh, just whomever has the gun rules the roost. Caroline, we are at the mid-season now, five episodes down, five episodes to go. Do you have any predictions? Do you have any thoughts on what we're going to see in the back end? It will be very interesting because I think we have Elsa's storyline taking such a huge turn that I, I don't know if it's going to just have to rely on her now abandoning that innocent kind of portion of it all and her more having to take in information through this filter of, of tragedy that she's endured so far. That will be a much different story for her. And I think there's going to be a lot more anger and bitterness between James and Margaret, both towards each other and towards their daughter, because there's just so much hurt, I think, regret and doubt about what this journey is really all about and how it's changing all of them, that I think we're going to have to hit some really, really bad, turbulent portions here before we see any light at the end of the tunnel. The three adult Duttons, I think, are going to go through a dark struggle um, as they deal with this, particularly it's going to turn out that Elsa is pregnant. There's far too much finger wagging and far too much foreshadowing of what Margaret's not going to do if Elsa turns out to be pregnant and that she's going to have to raise this kid, you know, herself and all that kind of stuff. All that feels far too heavy that it that it isn't going to come to pass, that Elsa has to be pregnant, that Spencer has to be her baby. We are going to find out more about how this Dutton line works, that it's really born of this tragedy. But I really appreciate that you've really listed it all out. So for those listeners who are like, wait, 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 how do you get there? Can you explain it? Well, it starts with this clip from the Road West. James is John's great, great, great grandfather. 
Now, since Taylor Sheridan blew our mind with that little clip, that was brand new information that we had not heard before. Uh, since the show started, I have I have had on various pads of paper different genealogical timelines on how it could work for James to be John Kevin Costner Dutton's great grandfather. If John Dutton, Kevin Costner John Dutton, isn't from the line of little John Dutton, played by Audie Ricken in this series, who's five years old in 1883, but is in fact from the line of Elsa having a baby. Here's my theory, guys. Elsa, pregnant with Ennis's child, Ennis has passed away. Elsa is going to have his baby. Because there's no father, it will be raised as a Dutton. It will have a Dutton surname. I think this is the child we saw in the Yellowstone flashbacks that we came to know as Spencer, according to the IMDb, the younger child of the two boys that we saw in the two flashbacks in Yellowstone this season. John, who is about 15 in those clips, and then the other boy, who we're calling Spencer, who is 9 or 10. I think, in fact, that is not John's brother, but John's nephew john in the series who's five is going to be the uncle to elsa's baby elsa's baby who's going to be called spencer is james's grandson okay first generation that makes him born 1883 let's advance him about 20 years when he has his kid now let's assume his mother is going to have him when she's 17 so even at 20 maybe he's a little bit older than his mother was when he had him 1903 spencer has his first child that child is james's great grandson fast forward 20 years so we're approximately 1923 gives birth to a child that's dabney coleman john dutton john dutton senior from yellowstone dabney coleman then let's fast forward 30 years or so 25 years or so 1950 1955 gives birth to kevin costner john dutton that John Dutton is then the great, great, great grandchild of James's Dutton. The ages work so much better with Spencer, the kid from the Yellowstone flashbacks, the younger of the two boys, being Elsa's child. Plus, like you said, it really works in well with Margaret having to say in this episode so many times, I'm not going to raise your child. I won't raise your child. Classic TV foreshadowing. Duttons of Yellowstone come from Elsa's bloodline, not from John's. And why we would focus so hard on her, why we would care so hard, why she would be such a leading lady in this storyline makes so much more sense. Because, you know, I know last week we talked about how Taylor Sheridan said she was the bridge. I think that that alone should have maybe like tipped us off because we Mm -hmm. could take that another way. That's a great point. That's why we care a lot. She's this she and I spoke to you a lot about how in 2022, speaking more about the maternal side and and caring more about how the women contributed to the Dutton line makes more sense to me, too, because here we have John Dutton in Yellowstone time, always speaking of James, always speaking of the men, always speaking about how they contributed. And here, when we're being told the story, we see Margaret and Elsa and how the women are really, you know, the different 
pieces of the puzzle that are so forgotten. Women and Taylor Sheridan, women, the women Duttons are always strong. I think the big question for people to be asking and we are asking ourselves is how does her being pregnant fit in with that opening scene of episode one? Mm -hmm. She takes an arrow in the stomach. Is she pregnant in that scene? And so does the baby get born as she dies and then she ends up dying in childbirth, which feels very on brand for Taylor and the Yellowstone story? Has she just had the child, which is also equally sad she has maybe just given birth and now she's never going to raise the child and margaret will have to raise the child i don't know i also feel like there's going to be a native american connection involved with the childbirth i feel very mm-hmm. strongly about this uh i keep going back to the fact that there are braids in her hair in that opening scene which seem very native american to me so i think there's going to be interactions with that and then there's going to be some irony with the fact that maybe it's a native american arrow that kills her there's some tragedy around this childbirth and that opening scene i I don't think we know yet exactly how it's going to play out um i I think you were of the mind of her dying in childbirth makes the most yellowstone narrative sense the way taylor tells stories i'm willing to pivot on that a little bit and say you know maybe she's the one who can't run away because she has an infant or because she's the one who, you know, gave birth recent, recently. So maybe she is the one who's got to just stand her ground and shoot at everyone. Where it could, because there doesn't seem like, you know, there's as many people defending that wagon circle there as she is. And so you see that ferocity in her too. I also like the idea of her having those braids and the beads. It will not surprise me if somehow, you know, a red bead represents her becoming a mother or something like that. Mm. But there's going to be in the same way that when we took the deer, we need to put the blood on your face, all that stuff. I could really see that there being some sort of tradition there that she has. Yeah, and I think her being in that white dress again, going back to sort of like the baptismal kind of moment at the beginning of her being in the white dress and then, you know, if if we look at this as she's likely dying, she is so slender, you know, it's very hard to tell you know, if she is you know, if she would have just given birth recently or what, it's very hard to tell, but I mean, I think that it's reasonable that with the braids and everything. She's undergone some sort of tradition, custom something with the Native Americans. I agree with you. And it does make sense to link it to childbirth. And I do see this sort of that bittersweet, like Margaret's so right. Like there's something about her having to protect her little one and that equals her her own death that is just going to have that horrible tragedy, you know, feel to it all. It's also important to note that again, she is, she in that opening scene is not wearing cowboy pants. She mm-hmm. has gone back to wearing a dress which may be indicative of childbirth right hard if your stomach had just been showing or what that she would be wearing well she probably wouldn't be on horseback if she had recently given birth that might be painful exactly so all those kinds of signs i think i think this is a theory that has legs and maybe hands and feet and a head too uh Mm -hmm. you know and baby size and i like the tie-in too that that they haven't given us a last name for ennis i think there's a fair shot that you know spencer's his last name and so Mm. somehow she's pulling over her you know her her love you know into into the child Right, because Spencer otherwise doesn't feel like a big Dutton name, right? It doesn't. They Jamie, really seem to John, have... James. Yeah. It seems outside their traditional names, that's for sure. I just want to hit, because uh, freedom, again, was a big episode, uh, big theme of this episode. Uh, we didn't talk about it before, but when Big, when big Boy was standing there watching the cattle, the, the wagon train head out, he starts ranting about America and freedom. I just want to play that cl- clip real quick, just just to say that we did and, and circle the wagon and circle the wagons. Uh, as it were, on freedom. Let's play this clip. 
interesting there that that's a whole other take on freedom this idea that he feels like he should be able to steal and take what he wants that's this guy's idea of america and freedom and also again with the wolf imagery i mean we, i was making the joke or i was making the easter egg connection to yellowstone and casey and wolves and dreams he's invoking wolves in a very different sense shay and thomas mimi james are not shepherds but wolves that are going to do them in in some way or do them harm and yet it's him and his his party who end up dead in their next scene you know the foreshadowing of it's the wolves come for them they are the sheep in the end not necessarily joseph and the other remaining immigrants i think that it's fair from his point of view to view you know shay and thomas and james as the wolves i mean there's definitely that sense of like you know a wolf in sheep's clothing you know that right. they are they walk amongst us as if they they could do no harm they act like they're very hands-off until they are hands-on and they suddenly kick you out of the group i think it's a fair warning to the rest of the immigrants i do think that the warning uh for me is more like keep in line and do the right thing don't be you know feeding off of each other in such a negative way no i do have a question mark of when you know the older man says you know you offered to push my wagon and help me and he said no i offered to do it in trade i'll help you with this you trade me the food i actually could see it from both ways that it's like well maybe he did say you know trade me and the the older man just was like whatever okay fine i know we're taking it strictly because because he's saying is this justice like did you even hear my side of the story at all? Did you just assume I'm a bad guy? There is some amount of conversation to to think about with all that. You know, I think this was a bad guy, though. You know, I mean, he seemed like he was not on the up and up. Props for that old man. You know that had to be hard for him to stand up to him. But, you know, there's strength in numbers, right? Once once someone stands up, it's a little bit easier for you to stand up, too. I took that to mean that there was a promise of help that was never given. So it was, I'll help you move your wagon. And then he just took the food and didn't help him move his wagon. It wasn't so much an agreed bargain. It was more like, give me your food and I'll help you move your wagon. It wasn't really like we negotiated. It was more like you bullied me into this quote-unquote deal. Right. Uh, yeah, I took it as one or the other. Uh, yeah, he's definitely painted as as a bad guy. But yeah, from his point of view, I guess where there are no rules. And we are not family, right? And I love the fact that Joseph brings this up. This is the first time we've really gotten a great explanation of the fact that the only thing in common is that we were all in the same ship. It's interesting. It's interesting that you're on this journey all together and you really don't know these people. Shay was kind of just doing this us and them kind of portion of like, well, you know, they're they're all the same. They're all them. And, you know, Joseph has repeatedly tried to explain, like, we're not the same. We don't all speak the same language. We don't all have the same background. Like treating us all the same isn't going to work. And, and he has said that since the beginning, you know, but Shay just doesn't isn't listening. 
Shay is very much, you don't listen to me and what I tell you to do, but Joseph could easily say, you don't listen to me. I've been telling you we're not a homogenous group. Or that you're telling me I'm the leader of people who don't even know who I am. Right, right. right. I don't speak my language. Right, right. It's not fair. You know, I, I don't have any, you know, sway over these people. They don't know who I am. So I think you're putting too much on my shoulders. If you watch the show on subtitles, you'll see, and especially in this episode, it really caught my attention. So that's why I'm, I'm noting it. When there's background noise or the group at large is tittering or talking, it's always German and Slavic chatter. This is a melting pot of people. Joseph probably can't speak actually to all the people in this group. Uh, it was just interesting. It was it was the first time I feel like, and I hope Shay heard finally, we are not a homogenous group. You know, we're doing the best we can, but we we are as little family as Shay and Thomas is to James and the other Duttons. Can I also say that I have a huge new respect for the concept of the cook on these these wagon trains and mm. the idea that somehow the cook is going to be half cook and half like bouncer. Yeah, like they're going yeah. to be Security. able to to keep that food safe and and ration it out properly. Like holy smokes, are they putting a lot on this poor cook is going to be hired? Like, so we have this motley crew. They continuously right. steal from each other. Now we're going to give you all of it. You fend them off, okay? All right, good. <laughs> like, what the hell? <laughs> like, your this sous is chef, a lot. Right, your sous chef has a double barrel shotgun. I mean, essentially. Right. They may or may not just, you know, garrote you in the night. Like, what is happening? The, the chef, I, poor the, cook. <laughs> the, the, the cook here, his cleaver is going to be as much for security as it is going to be for chopping meat. I can say that having seen you know some different little westerns or even when they're in like a comedy kind of setting the cook is always, always. no they're always no nonsense and they're always big and they're always like you don't you don't give you know cook any shit you know a lot of times they call them cookie right you don't give cookie any shit right because, and now i see why because they are partially this bodyguard of of the supplies that i did not give enough credit to the job of the cook you know i'm impressed of what that job really entails go watch any naval show or TV or movie and the chef on a naval warship, always a big barrel chested motherfucker who is going to bash your head together. Never considered the security issues that they that they specifically are being hired to do. Like, wow, I can't wait to see who that person's going to be. <laughs> I mean, listen, J James's qualifications were not new, knows how to make, you know, filet mignon, you know, at the right temperature. It was knows how to drive a wagon and, you know, knows how to protect food. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the Yellowstone podcast. 1883 episodes if you wouldn't mind heading to apple Podcasts, spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate review and subscribe and while you're there but especially at apple Podcasts and spotify Podcasts, if you could leave us a five-star review it would be most helpful because it helps in promoting the show and making it more visible across all of the podcast players and for one last time let's just pour one out for good old ennis i loved her I don't doubt it, son. Oh, heartbreaking. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. 
Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.